Matthew uh, 7, 1 through 12 is where we'll be reading today. It was Pew Bible, number page 1, number 1032. Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that you, not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? May God have blessing to the reading of his word. Keep your Bible open, if you will, there to Matthew chapter 7. It's good to be back with you. Um, Wiley and I had a wonderful experience in Turkey as we met with our missionaries there. Thank you for your prayers as we were traveling there to meet with Clay and Allison. There's another couple there, uh, Amanda and Jay Lemon, if you would pray for them. And then there's a young couple coming from the States going over there. The city we were in is Sparta, Turkey. Sparta has 210,000 people in it. There's a university, which is the largest university in Turkey, right on the edge of town. There's another 50,000 students that come during the school year there. So you're looking at 250, 260,000 people in one city there in Turkey. We have three uh, Southern Baptist missionaries there. And as far as they know, they've begun to build relationships, had wonderful conversations with people there in Esparta. As far as they know, they're the only believers in the city. They've yet to meet any other believers in the city. So if you would pray for them, lift them up. It's a city of great darkness, and they need the gospel. There's wonderful hospitality among the folks there. I know that we think about the Middle East, and you think about, oh, you're in Turkey, and we heard about the explosion in Ankara over there. And uh, There's a lot of evil all over the world, including our nation. There's a lot of evil there, too, but there's a lot of hospitality. We were welcomed into homes. We were welcomed into families to speak about uh, what we believed and listen to what they believed. We had some great experiences over there, and so I would challenge you, if you would, lift up Clay and Allison as we've sent them out to be over there, and I want to challenge you to keep them on your prayer list, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to go back. Uh, there were at least three different relationships that we built over there that they said, why would you not come back and, and spend more time with us and talk with us? And so... Uh, we may be trying to put a trip together in the next couple of years to get back over in Turkey with Clay and Allison. But do want you to pray for them this morning. I want to say thank you to Dr. Quarles for picking up in the middle of a series last week. It's not, not easy to pick up in someone else's series. And so uh, I don't know that you were here last week. If you were, you heard a wonderful message 
uh, that you need to hear over and over in your life. If you didn't listen to it or weren't here, challenge you to go on our website, listen to it. Every one of us, either now or sometime in our life, struggle with worry. We struggle with our relation to ourselves, how we talk to each other, how we uh, uh, live in our own life together. So go back, listen to that. Well, uh, well done sermon there when I gave him the parameters of the text. He did a great job with it. I think Dr. Corles would have loved to have taken piece by piece of that uh, to take you through it. So I appreciate him doing that. Today we turn to Jesus' teaching on how then we relate to others in the middle of this sermon. We, as people, are relational beings. You and I were made in the image of God because we're born in Adam who was made in the image of God. We are like him and the Bible says we're made in the image of our God. That means a lot of things to us, but today I want to talk about one of those things that it means for us and that is that you and I are relational beings. We relate to other people. Some would say we're called social beings because we are social. We have a social environment. Some internally. Worry deals with kind of how we internally relate to ourselves. Today we're turning out. How do we relate to others? We are relational beings in that we have interpersonal relationships with other people. And what you and I know is in this day, in our time, our, our um, period in history, we are fallen like Adam. And so we have relationships that are strained. Some of you today are sitting here and you know that you are living in relationships right now in which there are conflict in those relationships or there are things that you know that are between you and someone else. Our strain in our relationships is a result of at least two things. First, it's a result of our own sin. We sin against God and then we sin against others. And so as you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, what happened is the enemy convinced them that they should rebel against God and not trust him. And so when they did, they fell into a conflict, a broken relationship with the Lord. Not only that, they began to fall into a conflict with each other. God comes to Adam in Genesis when he sinned and he t- looks at Adam and he says, What have you done? And Adam does what any man would do that's worth his salt. He looks at his wife and says, It's that woman you gave me. And so immediately you have conflict in an interpersonal relationship. From the very beginning, there's conflict. Aren't we great at blaming it on someone else? Those of you who are married know that we're really good at blaming the problems in our homes, the problems in our life on our spouse. That is the closest relationship we have on this earth. It is the one that we have with our spouse. And so often we're so quick to see their sin. We're so quick to see their faults. And... Be blind to our own faults. Jesus is going to address that in the text this morning and give us some instruction on how to relate to others and how to not be so quick to see faults in others. Some of you say this morning, well, I'm not married. I'm not really relating to what you say there. Well, you also have relationships that are outside of marriage. Just because marriage is the closest relationship you'll ever be in doesn't mean that you don't have relationships that are strained. We all relate to people everywhere we go. You have families. We mentioned earlier that you'll be sitting with families over Thanksgiving, Christmas as we come up to a holiday season here. And some of you will sit with families. Some of you may not go to family because there's conflict there. Because of someone who's always critical, who always sees what's wrong with you and all they do is criticize you and you think, I just don't want it anymore. There are people, maybe you're that person in your family and somebody's not coming because you always see what's wrong with everybody and you're willing to call it out. 
We have coworkers. Some of you will go to work tomorrow and there are conflicts in your job. And there are people that always criticize or maybe you always criticize. And you find yourself just talking to yourself about what's wrong with everybody. Perhaps in your own neighborhood, you are isolated from neighbors because of being critical of them, because of fault-finding in them, or maybe they're fault-finding in you. It doesn't just happen on that level either. Just as a brief, we won't make any mention of this beyond right now, but it also happens on the national level. There are nations that are in conflict with each other because all we do is find fault in others. Aren't we good at finding fault in everybody else? We are so perceptive to see what is wrong in everybody else, and yet we're often blinded to what is wrong in us. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached, is going to address how you and I are needing to relate to others in a holy way in our lives. If you're just joining us, you're picking up in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is presenting to us Jesus Christ, the King. He was born of the line of David, so he is king forever. He is the one who will sit on the throne of David to be king for uh, uh, ever and ever in an eternal kingdom. And so Matthew's introducing him to us. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus stands up and he begins to preach what we would know as the inaugural address of the King of Kings. You know it as the Sermon on the Mount. We're picking up in the middle of that sermon He's taught us how to live now, how to get into the kingdom. Now he's teaching us how to live in this forever kingdom. And that is we are to be holy. He is making us like him who completes and completely keeps the law. And so when we are quick to judge and condemn others, we are often slow to consider and be generous and offer grace to others. Jesus says in those relationships, be quick to consider and be generous and offer grace, but be slow to judge and condemn. And so as we come back into this sermon in the middle of it, I want to remind you kingdom life, kingdom life is holiness. It is living as Jesus and it is allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us as citizens of this kingdom and change us into the likeness of Christ. It's significant to note, by the way, that he is teaching us the true meaning of the Old Testament. You'll see it in verse 12 when we get there. He's going to mention the law and the prophets. That's the last part of this sermon before Jesus moves into the invitation of the sermon, which we'll deal with next week beginning in verse 13. In verse 12 he says, this is the summary of all that I've said to you and it is the law and the prophets. I remind you, Jesus started there in chapter 5 verse 17 after the introduction to his sermon, the Beatitudes telling you how to get in the kingdom, come as spiritually bankrupt, come to him, trusting him. And then he tells us how to live in the kingdom. He starts and says, please know that I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And he's going to make it The holiness that he lives out the law, completing it, fulfilling it, he's going to make us holy like that. So in the beginning of the sermon, the end of the sermon, he mentions the holy law of God. And he's saying, I'm showing you the true meaning of it, and I'm showing you how to live it. Now here he's going to say how to live this holy life in relation to each other. So let's jump in and look what Jesus teaches us about holiness in our relationships. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Most of you know it. You don't even have to look at your Bible. I've said for the last couple of years, this is the most quoted verse in the New Testament, perhaps in the entire Bible in our day, in our culture. I would have said when I was a child, John three sixteen was probably the most quoted verse. It is no longer. This is it. But we quote it out of context, and we really don't quote the entire text. We say, judge not, 
Judge not. Don't, don't look at me for what I'm doing. Judge not, lest you be judged. We take this text out of context and we make it mean something. So it's all the more important for us, church, to jump in here and know what it means when Jesus, in the middle of the sermon, says, Judge not that you be not judged. So I want to make three major points for you today. We're going to have to look at them, verses 1 through 6 together, as we talk about how you and I must put away a readiness to find fault And in humility, be ready to confront others with gospel truth. We must put away a readiness to find fault. And in humility, be ready to confront others with gospel truth. Then in verse 7, we're going to look at prayer. We're going to need to to go to God, asking for the Spirit of God to indwell us, asking for the power of God to have this discernment, to know how to treat each other. So we're going to need to depend on prayer. And then we're going to finally look at verse 12, the summary of this entire sermon as what you know is the golden rule, and know that you and I must be proactive in living and loving others. So let's jump in here. The disciple first must put away a readiness to find fault and in humility be ready to confront others with the gospel. Judge not, lest you be judged. You and I both know, even in our English language, the word judge has two distinct meanings. I could use it in two ways. I used it once already in the service. Don't know if you uh, acknowledge that, but I invited for judges to come forward to judge our chili cook-off. Now, this is the sense of the word that we need somebody to analyze, to evaluate, to assess pots of chili and see whose is the best. That's one sense of the word judge. You look at and assess. You consider it. The other sense of the word judge is one that you and I use very often, but constantly context will determine that we're using it that way. And I believe the context of Jesus' sermon here demands that it is used that way. The second sense, that is what Jesus is forbidding, is that, that we pronounce a verdict. You have given judgment. You judge. That is normally a negative connotation with this. That is, you condemn. The verdict is condemnation. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You immediately jump to the verdict. You judge. You give a pronouncement of judgment, which is condemnation. And that second sense is what Jesus is forbidding. (coughs) Excuse me. A readiness to find fault and to condemn. It is, by the way, present imperative, judge not. That is, don't make it a practice of judging. That is... If your life is characterized by always condemning, being critical of others, then Jesus is speaking to you. Now let's be honest. We all know those folks that are extreme on this. You probably can name some people that you know that are always critical. They're always judging. doesn't matter what you bring before them. They are going to condemn it. It's almost as if I've told Jenny before, I've known some of those folks and I've, I've told her before. It's almost if I go to this particular person, I want to say the opposite of what I really want because I know they're going to condemn it and then I might get what I really want. Now, you probably know some of those folks. Maybe let's put them aside for a moment because my hunch is none of you believe you are that person. Now, you might want to ask your spouse or somebody beside you and say, hey, am I that person and ask them to be honest about it. But most of us don't believe we're that person. But all of us, if we're honest before God, probably have a tendency to judge quickly maybe too quickly to pronounce condemnation and to find fault in others all too easily. Jesus is speaking to us too. Judge not. Now, he says, as he continues on, that you be not judged, lest you be 
judge. The grammar's not entirely clear here who will be doing the judging when he says, judge not that you be not judged. The context probably tells us that there are two, so it may be a double meaning. Those whom you are judging, right? So you know those people we were talking about. When we are too quick to judge, then when we fail, boy, they get a great satisfaction in judging us back. But most likely, he's not talking about other people judging us. We love to judge the critical person. When they fail, boy, everybody exults in it. But most likely here, we're pointing to the ultimate judge because there will be a judge. And so as you read on in this text, verse 2 says, here's why. Here's why this is important. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, with the condemnation that you pronounce, you will be condemned. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So as critical as you and I are of others, Jesus is saying here, know this, judge not. Don't be too quick to judge others. Because that same measure that you're using, the standard, if you will, it's going to be used against you. And it'll be used against you, probably again, a double meaning here, with others around you, right? So if you are always putting up a standard, then others are going to hold you to that standard. But I think it probably is pointing us to the ultimate judgment. God is going to use that standard against you. Now, there are two issues as we deal with the standard, with the idea that there is a standard. There is, right? We all know there is a standard. For those of you who are overly critical, you're already, you're already saying, well, I'm just using the right measure. I'm just using the right standard. I mean, don't you have to hold some standard in life? Well, yes, you do. And there is a standard. And we need to say that there's a standard. But here's what you need to hear this morning. You're not it. And I'm not it. Your opinions are not it. Nor are my opinions. The standard, as we've seen in this sermon, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We will all be held to His righteousness. Our salvation is based on His perfection. And there's no one of us that can live to that standard. That's the standard we're going to be judged. So if you and I don't have grace in His judgment, then we have no hope. So my friend today, if you don't know Christ, if you have not come to Him, know that there is a standard that you'll be held to at the ultimate judgment. And if you've not placed faith in Christ and exchanged your sin, your failure, for His perfection, then you have no hope. My ultimate judgment will be by grace, and that's what Jesus is talking about here in your relationships with others. Be generous, be gracious, because when you're not, then when you get to the ultimate judgment, your judgment is going to be that. The measure that you use will be used against you. So as we think about that, and that God is then restoring in us the image of God, He's making us like Christ, His righteousness, we are to see that in our relationships. And so we are to hold Jesus up to our own lives and say, how am I doing relating to others? Am I doing it the way Jesus would love? We used to wear bracelets. What would Jesus do? That's kind of holding up this standard, WWJD. And you ask the standard, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus respond? Now, what Jesus is saying in this text is, you and I are so great at asking what would Jesus do when we think about others acting upon us. He's saying, no, no, no. You must ask the question in how you respond and act upon others. So we think about the standard very quickly. I think there are two issues here that I want to show you. First, sometimes we use the wrong standard. We're not really using Jesus as the standard. So I'd ask you this morning, what is the standard that you judge by? How do you judge others? There are hundreds of ways that you and I do it. We might do it by age. You might make some comment about somebody because of age or race or socioeconomic status. There are literally hundreds of superficial standards that you and I kind of go through in our head. 
I'll bring up a couple. One is we often use the wrong standard of maybe color of skin. I mentioned that we were in Turkey this past week and twice on this trip to Turkey. You have no idea. Maybe some of you have seen this and you've wondered. You've never asked me. I've never been asked this before. I've told Jenny a hundred times, I feel like I have a familiar face. People come up to me and say, I know you from somewhere. I've never seen them in the world. I mean, I can do this in Turkey or in Uganda. And I know you from somewhere. So I feel like I have a familiar face, but I've never been given this one twice on this trip. Somebody walked up to me and say, said, are you Jewish? No, I don't have any Jewishness in my background at all. There's nothing in my history. There's, my entire family is English. We are traced it back generations and generations, and we come from England. There was a company over there. I won't tell you all that, but I'm not Jewish. And I thought, man, just like I'm looking at these Middle Easterners, And I see characteristics of them, and I already know, man, you're a Turk, or you're not. There are those that are in Turkey that they can tell the difference just by looking at you if you're a Kurd or a Turk. And certainly before World War I, you could look and say, well, that's a Greek, and that's a Turk. You see, we judge based on skin. We do it here in America. We judge people, and we automatically form an opinion on people based on some things that we see about them. Maybe color of their skin. It may be other things. You see... If you're deciding about someone's spirituality and holiness based on things like this that are not determined, we can't decide or change the color of our skin. Or if they're based on opinions, right? Some people judge that, well, you're not wearing the right clothes. You're not wearing, uh, when we are at seminary right now, we're seeing a, a big influx of students wearing what I call skinny jeans, which I'll never wear. So let me just pull up my uh, illustration here. If you judge between skinny jeans and Carhartt jeans, which is what I own, amen? Um, so if you judge between those and you already make a judgment upon somebody, you're using a wrong standard, right? That's not the standard Christ is talking about here. Sometimes we'll judge people on habits and practices, Right, So there's also this, I remember this when I was in college, I had a distinct feeling from a particular uh, mentor of mine that really believed, he would not come out and say you were sinning, but if you didn't get up by 5 a.m. every morning and have an hour's prayer time before 5 a.m., you just weren't up to the standard of holiness. Right, So we judge on habits and practices. What do you do? How do you, do you spend at least two hours in the Word every day? We judge if you only spend 20 minutes. Oh, well, you're, you're really not that real Jesus person. We judge on things like that. And you and I make judgments upon people very quickly sometimes. Jesus is saying, do not rush to judgment on somebody. But the emphasis in this text is not those subpar opinions, practices, and skin color type stuff. The emphasis is here is that we use the right standard. Even if we're using the standard of holiness that's found in the text of Scripture, I think Jesus is saying, don't even be quick to judge then. Be quick to look at you first. You see, that's the emphasis here. So he says, you and I must not be quick to judge. Judge not that you be not judged because the measure that you use will be used against you. So then he asked two questions to illustrate his point. Two questions, look at them quickly. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Note the emphasis. Let's not deal with the standard. Let's assume you're using the right standard. And Jesus says there is a standard, and according to that standard, you have much sin, as illustrated in the log 
that is sticking out of your eye. Now, I used to use the illustration here, and it's very effective. A two-by-four sticking out of your eye and a speck of sawdust in the other person's eye. As I read that this week, I thought, as I studied this word, the word literally means a ridge beam. Ricky, know exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking about a ridge pole or a floor beam. If you were to go under this church, which was built 100 years ago, you will see big trees. I mean, they're literally trees that are the seals of this building. That's what it's talking about, a floor beam. So I'm not talking about a two-by-four even. I'm talking about a floor beam sticking out of your eye. And he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye when you have this log sticking out of your eye? Now, if you get the ridiculousness of that and you're smiling about that, how in the world? Here's the picture Jesus says. You're walking around with this big log sticking out of your eye. And you say, hey, brother, I see something there in your eye. He says, how can you even see that? How do you even see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice The log here. What he's pulling out is you and I are experts at not seeing our sin and calling out someone else's sin. How could you see that with that coming out of your eye? And then he asks a second question, verse 4. Or how can you even say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log hanging out of your own eye? How then? Even if you could see it. Even if you see your brother's sin, even if you see the speck of sawdust there, how would you be so prideful as to call out the speck of sawdust with this log sticking out of your your eye? Now, let me give you some explanation of the illustration. The log sticking out of the eye is the sin that Jesus is dealing with in your life. And he's saying, why don't you get a perspective on that? If you and I were to really grasp the weight of the sin that God is dealing with in our hearts, we would see how minuscule the sin that you and I see in other people. And we would then be able to say, let me deal with this rightly. So Jesus gives us instruction. Look at verse 5. So you hypocrite, prideful, spiritually inept, foolish hypocrite, do this. Deal with the log. Deal with your own sin. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So church, let me get in here with you. This is what Jesus was teaching us. By the way, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Right? That's what he's getting at. You and I need to show and see the mercy of God. The point here is that what you see that is wrong in your brother is minuscule to what is in your life that God sees in you. And so while we are so good at seeing our sin, or the, our brother's sin, we are horrible at seeing our sin and we need to be on our knees before God asking him Lord help me to see my sin help me to see my spiritual blind spots you and I we all have blind spots why is it that we're so good that our vision is 2020 and seeing other people's sin but we are blinded to our own sin why is that so Jesus gives you instructions deal with your sin then deal with your brother's sin now this helps us understand chapter 7 verse 1 a little better When he said, do not judge, he's not saying do not ever judge. John Stott, when he writes on this text, says, this is not a requirement to be blind in chapter 7, verse 1. It's rather a plea to be generous. 
You and I, in dealing with our brother's sawdust, speck of dust, verse 5, we must be generous to them, understanding our own sin. That brings a humility to us when we deal with our sin and we come to others. It means that we come to others in a 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul manner of, I am the chief of sinners, but if I can help you, please let me help you. The Lord is dealing with the log in my eye. He's helping me with my sin, but if I can help you with yours, then I want to help you, but I know that I am the chief of sinners, so I come to you as a brother. I come to you as one who is humble. So let me give you very quickly four steps of applying this gospel. I've applied the gospel to me. Now I want to help you. Let me give you four steps of applying the gospel in relationships. Right here in the text. Number one, be slow to judge others. The rule here is generosity. When you see the speck in others' eyes, when you want to be critical, be slow. Right, So we used to say this in college. I even started saying it in seminary, and I've said it to some of my students right now. There are emotions to it, so you might want to watch this. Think before you speak. Right, That's what he's saying. Be slow to be critical. Even in your own thinking, take those thoughts captive. If you just are thinking and you're critical in your thinking, but you don't talk about it, you're still being critical in your spirit and your heart, and you're still going to have to deal with that. Be slow to judge others. Generosity is the rule. Number two. Use the correct standard when you must judge. Jesus Christ is the rule. When you must judge, make sure you're actually using the right standard. Don't judge others on opinion. Don't judge others on things that they can't change in their hearts or their lives like age, skin color, socioeconomic status. Use the right standard. Let's bring Christ into our conversations. Number three, deal with your own sin before assisting others. Deal with your own sin before assisting others. In other words, apply the gospel to your own life. Humility is the rule here. You should ask God to help you see your sin and deal with your own sin before you start dealing with anyone else's. Church, listen carefully. You are going to have to work at this. You are absolutely expert at helping deal with everybody else's sin. You have to work at dealing with your sin. So humility is the rule. Ask these questions just as a start. How have I sinned relative to the issue that I'm dealing with? Perhaps in the middle of conflict with someone else, you need to ask yourself, how have I contributed to this problem? Deal with your own sin first. Then fourthly, graciously confront your brother's sin. You see, what we find out from this text in verse 5 specifically is love does require us to speak the gospel into each other's lives. The gospel confronts us in places of unbelief and ignorance. We need one another to draw attention to these places and to push each other toward Christ. You have blind spots and God has put you in a body of Christ so that we can help you with blind spots. I have blind spots. He's put me in this body so that you can help me with my blind spots. But when we are going to deal with each other, we must deal with our own sin first and then it'll put me in the right perspective, log versus your sawdust, to help you deal with that. I won't help you from a condemning judgment standpoint. I will help you from a brother side by side, loving, humble standpoint. How can I serve you? So we must serve one another. Apply the gospel to your own life first, and then you'll be ready to assist others. And you'll do so with compassion, not condemnation. You'll speak with kindness instead of criticism. You'll come as an equal not as someone who is elite. You will assess with a standard of truth, not with a standard of your own opinion, and you will assist with very much clarity, not with confusion.
Be gracious in assessing others, but when you must confront sin with gospel truth, and we must do so with humility, patience, clarity, and precision. Now, let's move. Verse 6. We're going to go through the rest of the text a little quicker. Let's go to verse 6. It's a, it's a time where you read this and you say, Do not give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs. What's he talking about? At first glance, verse 6 doesn't seem to fit with the preceding. But upon further investigation, I believe we'll find it actually clarifies the first five verses of this text. Namely, while the first part of the text instructs us not to be overly critical in our relationships with others, the next portion instructs us to avoid being too lax in our discernment of others. Look at verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In contrast to the warning not to be too critical while ministering the gospel truth, here Jesus teaches us that discernment is required when ministering gospel truth. So, don't mess up on either extreme is what he's saying. Look at it with me. He says, do not give. It's a command. It's a command to us. Do not give. Do not give what? What is holy and pearls. Both of them are synonyms for the same thing. What is holy in this message, as we could go back through and show, what is holy is the gospel truth. Perhaps he's talking even about the first five verses here of what he's been talking about. But I think it's the gospel of the kingdom. Certainly later in this, very, in this very book, Matthew is going to quote Jesus saying there is a pearl of great price. That is the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So I think he's saying this gospel of the kingdom, be careful. Do not give it to dogs and pigs, which begs the question, who are dogs and pigs? Now I'm not sure about you, but at my home, we have both dogs and pigs. So I kind of get this text. But if you go back to an early uh, uh, first century Jewish mindset, dogs and pigs would have both been from the Old Testament times... Both of them would have been unclean animals in Jewish tradition. And so, by nature, by their uncleanness, they must not be given anything that is holy. And so, they must not be given. There are those that must not be given the gospel of the kingdom of God. Why? Because they will trample it. This is exactly what a pig will do. If he thinks there's better food somewhere, you can throw in food. He'll trample right over it to get to what he thinks is the food. That's the illustration. A dog that you give him something, he doesn't believe it's food, but he's hungry. He's a vicious dog. You throw something that you believe is food, what is holy, he doesn't believe it's food. He's going to go after it, but then he's going to turn and he's going to come back at you all the more ready to get something that he believes is food. And so a pig will trample, a dog will turn and attack. And so when dogs turn and attack what is given to them, they don't believe it's food. Why? They have no spiritual appetite. Leon Morris, in talking about this verse, says, Disciples are not to be judgmental, but that does not mean that they are to lack discernment. I believe Jesus is calling us for discernment here in not being too critical, but not being too lax in our ministering the gospel. You see, Jesus in Matthew will later instruct his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all, but to shake the dust off their feet if the message is not received in a particular house or a town. Some will hear the gospel and rebel. Discernment requires that there are times that we move on and refuse to continue to preach the gospel in the face of persistent rejection and hostility. So, how do we discern? How do we live in such a way as to not be judgmental, but discern when we're casting holy things before dogs and pearls before swine? We need the work of the Holy Spirit within us, which is what Jesus turns to in verse 7. 
You see, this is the promise of the new covenant. God will put his spirit within us who will teach us his commands, show us his ways. So what Jesus is saying is, if you don't want to be too critical, you don't want to be too lax, how do you know, how do you live in relation to other? Pray, pray. Notice how Jesus continues to turn to prayer. You heard it last week. You heard it the week before that. He taught us how to pray in the early chapter 6. He taught us how to pray instead of worry. Last week, this week, he's saying, you need to pray in your relations to others. In verse 7, he says this, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Here's the point of this text, verse 7 through 11. Here's the point. Prayer to our Father is effective. So ask. It's a present imperative command. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Why? Verse 8. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to the one who knocks, it will be open. Ask. Have the boldness to ask God, to go to God and ask Him. Asking reveals a heart of trust and belief in the Father. It will be given. Seek. It's different than asking. The one who seeks doesn't completely know either where or how to find that which he seeks. Either way, the one who goes to the Father seeking will find. Because that's what the Father will do. We trust him not to lead us astray. That's why we seek him. Knock. The one who knocks stands on one side of a door through which he desires to enter. The Bible says knock and it will be open to you. The point, again, is that God is giving us a weapon in our fight for holiness in our relationship to others. And so he gives us an illustration beginning in verse 9. Again, notice he's asked two questions. Which one of you, if his son asked for him, ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The questions are very clear. They're rhetorical. You know exactly. None of you. I have children, and I delight when they come to their father and ask. I love it when they come to me and just ask, Dad, could you help? I love being a part of that. You do too with your children. Jesus says you, by the way, he notes here, being evil. You born in Adam. You who are not good. You who need salvation. You know how to give good things to your children. Now, argument from the lesser to the greater. If you know that, how much more your heavenly Father, who is perfect, will give to the one who asks. You will be given, you'll receive, you'll find, the door will be opened. You see, he just simply says, you want to know how to have holiness in your relationships, how to not be so critical, how to confront with humility, how to know when not to keep throwing holy things before dogs. You want to know how to be not too lax, not too judgmental. Pray. Turn to your Father. He is assuring us of our Father's response. Your Father, who is in heaven, will give good things to him who asks. Come to him and ask him. Just like I delight in giving things to my children, the Father delights in giving things to you. So ask him. Ask him for the Spirit of God to fill you. Ask him for the good things. That is... Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Ask, he will 
give it. Boldly ask your Father to help you have grace and discernment in your relationships. Thirdly, we come to the end, verse 12. So, summary of the entire sermon. This ends the sermon. Beginning verse 13, we get to the invitation. So, he is going to summarize it. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We know this as the golden rule. The rule is found in some way or other in most religions, but mostly it's stated negatively. As far as we know, this is the first time ever that it was stated in a positive format. Let me challenge you. The negative is simply this. Do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. You could take care of the negative thing by doing nothing. Just don't do anything to others. Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus is the first to have ever stated in a positive sense here in the Sermon on the Mount. So he says to you, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So I want you to notice about the golden rule. Here's how we are to live. The summary of holiness in your life. The scope is universal. Whatever you wish others. Everything in every sphere of your life. The scope is universal. The emphasis is personal. Whatever you wish. Jesus knows that you will have evaluation of your relationships. You will look at your life and he does it. He tells us to do so from the perspective of preferring others over ourselves. We have desires. We would love for people to treat us in certain ways. We would love for people to treat us with the benefit of the doubt. If I don't speak to you this week and I see you in downtown Raleigh, you could say one of two things. That pastor is just a snob and he'll never speak to me if I'm not in the church. Or you could say, he must not have seen me because I know him. He loves me. And he would have definitely spoken to me if he had seen me. You see, we would want others to say, if you didn't speak to me, which one would you want me to think of you? Why is it that we go to the negative so much when we're thinking about others? Jesus says, whatever you desire of others, do so to them. It's personal in the way that we see others. The command that he gives requires action. As opposed to a negative statement, which would require you just to do nothing, just don't do any harm, this one requires that you actually proactively prefer others. You see, the command requires action on your part. He says it, do also to them. The result then is holiness. Look at what he says at the end of the verse. That this, for this, is the law and the prophets. You want to know how to be holy? You want to know how to be like Christ? This is it. Whatever you wish others to do unto you, do it to them. Functionally then, this means that you and I actively love and prefer others in our relationships. Church, our sinfulness in Adam... That is, we are evil people. Means that we struggle in relationships. And we'll have relationship issues, relational issues, until Jesus removes all sin. So today, many of us need to consider some of the things in this very text. Some of us need to consider how quick we are to judge and repent of it. Some of you may need to go to others that you've been critical to and repent to them and say, will you forgive me for being so quick to judge you? I'm going to pray that God will give me a generous, gracious spirit. Some of us need to get on our face before God and say, God, give me wisdom to know how to confront and how to be gracious. Some of us need to get on our face before God and ask, God, help me to see my own sin because I don't see the log in my eye. Preacher talked said there was a log. I don't see it, but I can see everybody else's sin very clearly. Ask God to give you 
wisdom. Some of you need to be in this altar this morning and just get on your knees and pray, God, there is a relationship that is torn apart and I want you to heal it, but I'm going to have to take my part of it. I'm going to have to confess my sin first. Give me the courage and strength to do so. Some of us need to invite somebody else to actually speak into our lives, maybe for the first time, to give them permission. If you see a speck of dust in my eye, would you tell me? Because I need to know. I want to be holy. Give somebody permission to do that. And then do it with your sphere of friends, with other believers, with grace and humility, knowing that you and I struggle with sin, but we're all battling for holiness together.